Thank you for listening to Recyclables. I really appreciate it. If you want to support the program, the best way to do that is to like, subscribe, and share. Uh, the next best way is to make a donation either through the Acast app or at our Patreon, which is just patreon forward slash recyclables.com. Until next time, thank you. We're here to talk with Maelstrom today because of your day job, if you will. Uh, tell us a little more about what you do and what uh, what is going on in Seattle right now around that and how you're a part of that. All right. So um, what we wanted to talk about today specifically was we were going to get into the volunteer work that I have been doing with the Pay Up campaign in Seattle, focused around giving gig workers basic worker protections in the Seattle area. Essentially, back in 2017, 2019, sometime in that period, Working Washington realized that gig workers had been um, treated unfairly and that that was increasing because the process that's happening is corporations have realized that you don't have to treat gig workers like employees, so they've been trying to move as many people into gig work as they can. And gig workers pay a very high, they're at self-employed tax brackets, they don't get basic worker protections, yada yada. Well, Seattle has... 40,000 estimated gig workers, which is about half the number of people that work at Amazon. So it's a significant of the population and larger than some towns. However, they greatly come from marginalized groups. I don't think people really understand how impact can affect people differently. You know, like I think the most, uh, a very easy thing for people to understand is I have asthma. If, we are, if we're in a building and the building catches on fire and the, and the building fills up with smoke, the smoke has a greater chance of impacting me much worse than the people around me. It's the same smoke, same factory, same fire, different person. And this translates informationally in every direction. So because we know that black people, for instance, and black women specifically have the worst time with our medical system, it's naturally going to end up with more permanent, hard-to-manage medical problems because they can't get taken seriously because they're black and women. And those two things magnify the problem in, like, that's the whole point around intersectionalism and understanding all of these things. So when it comes to gig work, as someone who is presenting most of the time as a 45-year-old white guy, you know, I'm six feet tall, I'm a baritone, it's easy for me to speak out and get involved in these things. But most gig workers do not have the time, ability, information, or the respect of society to really advocate for themselves so well. If you're a single mom, a woman of color, and you are already working your ass off to make rent and to survive in Seattle, and you decide to fall on, say, uh, where I work, I work for DoorDash, so say you fall on DoorDash because A, it controls most of the market for food delivery, and B, it's relatively easy to sign up and get started because you still have a car, but you need this flexibility because you've got three kids varying ages and they still have to go to school and all this other stuff and you don't have anyone helping you at home and you don't have access to your family because maybe they're not around. Lots of these exact women are part of the demographic of gig workers and other workers, of course. But for gig workers specifically, this woman now has to make accommodations with capitalism that do not benefit her so that she can survive. And this frequently means things like making less than minimum wage, covering the costs of her job, which is a thing that we make gig workers do now that was abhorrent earlier on in capitalism. It is a dream of capitalists to make the individual pay for their job. The line that I used 
interviews was it's like expecting the person to make your pizza to pay for the toppings of the pizza. That's what we do with gig workers now. And it's perfectly legal because gig working became popular after the, the current existing labor laws. The PayUp campaign is a movement to redress this, it, this problem. The, the PayDash campaign and the things we're doing, uh, before I explain, what we're basically doing is we're going through city council to get some rules passed for Seattle. One of the things that happened, and the very first thing a PayUp campaign was, was able to do, was that the, shortly after they got organized, and, and by organized, I mean, Working Washington has some people that works with volunteers, but all the ideas, all the work, everything's done by volunteers. So, like, I'm a volunteer, so I did media stuff because of my experience and, you know, the fact that I'm a giant nerd and like to talk about stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of people involved in this process, and all the, the Working Washington people do is pay for things. Like, we recently did an art installation at City Hall in Seattle uh, a few days ago that I co-hosted with my uh, friend Jason. Um, and we work for different businesses, um, like Instacart and stuff like that. And we got sick days for Seattle gig workers. Now it's until like, uh, I don't know, nine months or something after the pandemic is over, whenever that gets ruled. But it does show that we can get things passed through city council that affect people. It does define gig workers as essentially people who do at will work through apps or other groups but don't have bargaining power because of their job. So there's other things like freelance grab designer. That's not the same thing as an Instacart driver. You have a different relationship with your job. It, they do need labor protections, but that's outside the scope of what this campaign is focused on. Like, I can't remember absolutely all the ones that fall underneath it, but it does include some of the other app services. We did have one rover person, but we what we what we tried to find was people from each app that's willing to participate their ideas and experiences. But some of the individuals on these app that did join these Zoom meetings that we were on to talk all of this stuff out, they weren't comfortable having these conversations in a sub in a public forum like Zoom meetings with the city council, like I've done now, and like uh, I met with the office of the new city council member. There's been drama with her already. And I can't speak to the exact details of her situation, but she has had conflict with homeless people and other stuff already. She ran for city council, running against extremism in the city council. She can she labels herself a progressive, which means she's a moderate at best who wants to be thought of as better. But the very first thing she did is she skipped out on her meeting with us. We met with one of her staff members to talk about and explain our position. Several volunteers like myself, including... One of the people from PayUp to help make sure that all of this made sense to her and had experience working with politicians were in a Zoom conversation. She was not there. Now, we thought she was listening in. Not long after, there was a whole thing at city council. I was at that. I did my minute speech, what had Later, she comes on and on the record lies about what we're asking for. Now, we already have a co-sponsor for the bill. That's not her. We already have pretty much consensus from city council. But she literally came on city council to argue against what things that could help workers. Yeah, she was trying to say that it would make it harder for the consumer as well as the gig worker. Like, it would make you guys end up having to pay more or whatever. I want to punch the microphone every time I hear someone say that it's going to hurt the consumer's pocketbook because it shouldn't. Because every time that happens, what that is, is the business being like, man, we could pay these people and make a little less ourselves at the top. 
Nah. But it's it's a okay. So here's the part Sorry. that most people don't realize. Mind you, um, the rationalization in capitalism starts at a negative position against the worker. Mm. When these businesses are talking about it costing them money, they measure after the savings of firing their own delivery drivers. So if it's if they save twenty five dollars an hour firing their own delivery drivers, so that they can hire drivers to do these apps for ten dollars an hour, they will complain about having to pay an extra ten dollars, even though at the end of the day they're saving five dollars off the original model. They measure from where it benefits their argument the best. I've become much more of an economic junkie in the last uh, couple of years, and all the free time I've had through the pandemic and. All the time I've had to listen to this stuff. And I've always been something of a syndicalist and a, a labor rights activist simply because of my own experience as a marginalized person with mental health issues struggling through the service industry in Idaho, the most libertarian state literally colonized by people fleeing the Civil War because they lost. It's also an interesting thing because there's an article on your Facebook to get kind of an idea of how Seattle was talking about it because for so listeners know in case they didn't uh rochelle and i are in portland maelstrom is in seattle where it's all going on the 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 pay up campaign and one of the things i found really interesting is there's there's a rebuttal by one of the people in the article about um the problem being that gig workers will get to turn down gigs so you'll get to look yeah you'll get a you'll get a look at how much it costs and decide, oh, that's not worth my time, and say no. But everything else in there, from what I read, saw seemed pretty, pretty legit. Where it's like, it's never going to be perfect because we're in an imperfect system. But doing nothing just perpetuates bullshit and continues to make it crappy. And like, additionally, if they can cancel those gigs, anyone can cancel their gigs. If you if you're uh, a plaid pantry, you can be like, actually, no, you don't pay me enough to mop the floor. Fuck you. Like, And I do remember the first thing I was going to say. I remember there was that thing where they wanted everybody who worked at DoorDash, even like the engineers and all the back-end people, to do one dash a month. And they lost their they lost goddamn their minds. Yeah, I would love you to maybe give us kind of like a blow-by-blow blow of a few of the things that like make it so people wouldn't want this job. Uh, and also why we need advocate for the rights. Before, before Maelstrom responds, that just reminds me of when, uh, when I was with Plaid, I got up to assistant manager, and there's like a class you take to, to, that basically is like, watch out everybody steals from us, including us. Uh, but at the end of it, like the vice president, one of the presidents higher up in the company comes in and gives a little like, thanks for making me money, guys. I appreciate it. Uh, and we all got to ask him a question. And like my only question was like, so have you done any of this work ever and <laughs> and dude was like dude was like well they made me try it once but like i'm i'm the president i don't need to know how this shit works and i was like this is also the same guy that got his job because he flew like private airplanes like like cessna planes uh with the old president of the company and they were like oh you should have my job because we both have the same mode of transportation that you only have when you're extremely wealthy <laughs> All right, okay, so here's what I think I, I want to do so we can construct it in a narrative way and answer everything. Is I want to kind of explain going through my day, and then in this way I will explain the policies we're trying to implement and why we need those policies and the impact it would have on my job. Because here's the thing. I actually have the best version of the DoorDash job. I actually make between $25 and $35 an hour. 
I have made over $100 in less than two hours on multiple occasions because of reasons I will get to during this narrative. So, like, I am not the person who I am most advocating for. On a chronological scale, I first got contacted randomly from these uh, from the payoff campaign back in October of last year, and I was passively interested because I do occasionally become, uh, like activism for short spurts, typical ADHD stuff, and um, but I didn't really respond until DoorDash started to screw with me personally, and I am just a very vindictive if I don't put a lid on it. <laughs> so that comes from the emotional deregulation. But what I'm really good at is righteous indignation. That's my energy. Now, DoorDash yeah, that... doesn't know this. I have sick days thanks to the payoff campaign from before I knew they existed. I was using them because you can't cash them out for money, and I know that I'm, I, I, I know to use my benefits because it's not like the company is going to do anything if you don't use it. You don't get bonus points. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm considered a top dasher, which means I do 100 deliveries a month, I accept at least 70%, and my um, delivery rate is over 96%. 96% or over. Um, which means I get very little benefits, except I can clock in and out when I want to. So, catching up to where I am right now, DoorDash decided to screw me over on letting me use my, my uh, sick days by making it impossible for me to use them. They changed the policy, they made me contact... Uh, I have to call the Philippines to talk to somebody so they can contact another group so that person can contact me. Eventually, I get in contact with the Office of Labor Standards in, in Washington, who are currently now, they have requested my entire labor records with them, and they're going over it to decide exactly how much to fine them for their behavior. So this is going on while... So now I'm in full spite mode, which yeah. I will obviously die on that hill if I need to. But also, having spent this long in the service uh, sectors of the economy, I know for a fact that I can do a lot of bullshit, and I don't need this job. Like, I just don't. I will hate it, because change sucks, but I'll be fine in a couple months. So, I was already mad at these guys. They had already been kind of screwing us over. I had been jumping through all these hoops. I figured out a system in the pandemic. You know, like, I stay with DoorDash because my partner has a heart condition, and they are in a very high-risk category. And I am slightly elevated because I'm 45 with diabetes and asthma and some other bullshit. But, like, you know, just in a, like, I'm in a yellow category. Not safe, but not, don't mm-hmm. relax, you know. So, when DoorDash is acting like that, I'm just being, I'm taking screenshots, I'm recording phone calls, I am starting email chains, you know, like Marcus, the guy at the office. Uh, he's got another guy there, and apparently they're the whole office in the state of Washington is just two guys who have to fight these companies to make sure people get paid. Working Washington is the uh, actual like biz, like the actual group that works for workers' rights. We pay up campaigns were for a minimum of fifteen, whereas now we're like at almost seventeen dollars minimum wage in Seattle. That's my energy coming into this. So here's where we're at. I work rushes. I live on Capitol Hill, and for those of you who don't know, Capitol Hill is the gayest neighborhood in Seattle. Highly gentrified is the language I prefer to use. Um, I live across the street from a Salvation Army in a low-income housing apartment complex that is not treated very well. Um, there are a lot of nice places, and so I'm adjacent to downtown, like it's literally, I live on Pike Street, and if you've heard of Pike Market, that's literally mm-hmm. down the street from where I live, you know, right across, I'm right next to the city, uh, the convention center. And so I work rushes in a very highly dense, highly populated, lots of restaurants, lots of people, and I maximize the work that I do. 
But when I clock in, I can only clock in when I'm allowed to. I have to jump through hoops to become a top dasher to be able to clock in when I want. Now, when you see the ads that they ran uh, in California for Prop 2, and that they will run in Washington, because the reaction to uh, the city council member making laws is to keep that from spreading, that they will come in with their lobbyists and they will create state laws if they can to prevent the uh, this from spreading statewide. Yeah. Because what we are asking for is basically bare minimums, but their business model is predicated on them paying less than minimum. It's economic force is what the moving factor is. In a state like Boise, Boise doesn't have any representation uh, in the country because as a population center, it is cut right in half. Representation is then split between the east and the north, where they have mountain people and Mormons, respectively, who vote traditionally conservatively. So Boise, being a population center, can control some things, but most of the state representation is are not from Boise. And they are, you know, Austin has the same issue in Texas. I think Austin's cut into five different districts. <laughs> so that just because too far left. However, Seattle has a uh, GDP much, much larger than several of Idaho's put together and have an as effect on the region. And when you consider the fact that Seattle and Portland and further south, a lot of California tend to agree on a lot of these policies. Once it gets centered in the West, it's normalized. They have to vilify it on a national level and try to make it sound like places like this are difficult to live. But like mm-hmm. in Boise, the rent is like 85% of what it's what in Seattle, but minimum wage is twice as high here. I have potential to make a lot more money here in Seattle than I do in Boise, but and my bills are higher, yes, but my end of the day, my living standard is much higher because of these policies. So first off, you can't clock in whenever you want. Many apps actually force you to have a schedule like a regular job some apps force you to report to a supervisor some apps don't allow you to pick and choose your job whenever it enters into the narrative there was a couple threads going around about tipping in doordash drivers around mcdonald's mcdonald's gets a lot of orders people get drunk they get high uh, especially in a state like washington where there's no prohibition on cannabis and they order mcdonald's i don't judge them for this but they are paying out the butt for cold McDonald's, which you and I both know, not worth the money. But here's the thing. If I'm driving, now, once I do clock in, if you're a DoorDash driver, you have to schedule it um, ahead of time, which means it has to be available. Not all schedules are available all the time, uh, like a certain window. Or if you become a top dasher, which is what I usually uh, would recommend people try to do, I can clock in and out when I want to, and then that's my only benefit. We used to get priority orders, but then we don't. These things replicate themselves commonly throughout the system. Like, these labor issues are the same in and outside the gig workforce. The language changes so that they can control the narrative. These companies spend millions of dollars on Ivy League graduates to rationalize why they don't have to pay people. They start the argument from their beneficial point. They leave out information. The city council member said that this policies, these policies would force uh, companies to pay uh, drivers 170% of minimum wage. This is why that's a bold-faced lie. If you look at the policy or the presentation, even in its most simple forms, this is what we're asking. My first order comes up, it's $6. $6 to go downstairs to a very popular restaurant and deliver it, eh, let's say, 10 minutes away. 
that's about 15 minutes of work if I'm lucky. This doesn't count for traffic, you know, like, especially because I live on Capitol Hill, which is right next to the I-5. I literally live right next to the I-5. Uh, and outside of the pandemic, this whole neighborhood locks down for rush hour traffic. I mean, the geography is built on uh, old glacial paths, so a lot of the hills and everything like that, it's why the hills run uh, north-south, because that was the direction the glaciers took. There's a lot of terrible things about driving in Seattle. For instance, in Seattle, it's not normal for your lights to be on your address. So if you're an ambulance driver or a pizza delivery driver or what have you, you can't find addresses at night, which it's just weird because in Boise, it was the opposite. It was weird if there wasn't a light shining on your address. When you say you're paid $6 for, is that $6 going to you or they paid $6 themselves? That's my time, my gas, my car repairs, my taxes, everything because as a self-employed, I'm in the highest tax bracket. Even if I make less than minimum wage. That's such fucking bullshit. And right. so it's 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 six dollars goes to you, and then the I guess my question is: Is the customer paying six dollars themselves? They're probably or... paying more. Okay. First thing that we want is minimum wage. That's it. The math equation, the logical, the arguments, like one of those sticking points. And this is what the corporations do: is they argue every point. But the point is, at the end of the day, when I'm working, I should make minimum wage. Mm-hmm. We've agreed that minimum wage is the least you can make and still contribute to society. Even people on minimum wage, as you know, struggle heavily, and that's a whole other conversation. But if we make the argument that minimum wage is necessary to be a contributing factor as opposed to a drain on society, phrasing they use, but using their arguments, I have to calculate in my head how much it's going to cost me to do this. Now, we've done math. I basically measure gas at... Uh, I drive my roommate's Subaru, and it's a turbo. So I got a Costco membership because the, the gas savings compensates me for it. I don't drive full-time, and I still go through two full tanks of gas a week, which means I spend um, over $5,000 a week in gas doing this job, or a year in gas doing this job, if I'm working every week. Now, what I've done through the pandemic is I have worked up until I needed to have my bills paid, and then I stopped. This was to protect mm-hmm. myself as much as possible and to protect my partner. My roommate was on unemployment until fairly recently when they canceled unemployment benefits, uh, which means he just stayed home. He took classes. Uh, he worked on a bunch of other stuff. He actually got, uh, uh, he's got an eating disorder. He went into group for a while. Very helpful, uh, beneficial things. You know, the government actually helped somebody out for this. Not me. Okay, so now it's my work day. The $6 show. I'm not going to take a $6 order. Now, mind you, it's not really $6, because the other thing the Pay Up campaign did was get us the hazard pay. Now, they don't call it that. DoorDash calls it premium pay, because that's what the city council calls it. Instead of calling it hazard pay, which is the same thing we give retail workers. Not that retail workers got that. Like, there's still... Plaid employees got a uh, temporary bonus of one time if they worked 40 hours at a place that usually only schedules them 38, so... Yeah, they mitigated it down to basically nothing. And, like, uh, Safeway here, what they did is they just cut hours to make up the money. What DoorDash did is they took that 250 and they actually added it to the customer's bill. It doesn't cost them anything. It's impossible to prove this, but it is on the thing of your site as a customer. So if you order DoorDash in Seattle and you see this 250 premium charge and you don't know anything about this, and why would you? You're just ordering food after your tech job. You might assume that that goes to the driver. It does. 
And there has to be a percentage of people who reduce their tip because of that extra 250 cost mm-hmm. because they passed it on to the consumer. That, that 250 that I get is subtracted from the $6. I do this mentally when I first look at it. So in reality, they just offered me $3.50 to take a, to work for 10 to 15, 15 minutes. That's before taxes and before costs. And you can already tell right off the bat that's not worth my time. Like, okay. So first off, I, I go to I gotta go, I'm on the fourth floor. I gotta go down to Zeka, the restaurant downstairs, super popular place. They may have a thirty minute wait time. I have choices that I can make from them. But let's say the wait, wait's only five minutes. Okay, that's worth my time. I do not get paid to wait. One of the changes of the pay scale is that the minute you clock in, you are getting paid for every mile you drive and every minute you're at work. Now there are gonna be some long term ramifications that have not necessarily been discussed once this goes through. Um, they're probably going to really cut down on you being quote-unquote on time and I'll tell you for a fact that they don't uh, they use Google Maps to determine how long it takes to get anywhere what Google Maps doesn't understand is three dimensions let's say the address I'm going to is on the 17th floor I have to enter in a passcode if the customer gave it to me they don't give us your last name so if I can't figure it out or there's not a concierge to let me in and some places have those some places just stare at you even if that's their job because you still have to go through the process the customer has to buzz me in, and mind you, not every customer is waiting for you. They just order and then forget. So I then have to go to the elevator where I have to wait. Some of these elevators on some of these buildings it takes some time. It can take between five and ten minutes once I'm at the apartment. That's the time I don't get paid for. And I can't predict because they don't give us that information. I just have to be like, obviously, if you see an apartment and it's 2304, yeah, it's on the 23rd floor. It's downtown. But a lot of people that do this job aren't from Seattle. I've got mm-hmm. over 2,500 deliveries over the pandemic uh, in Seattle proper. So I have a pretty good idea of where I'm going, but even I don't know. And this minute they give me to determine to accept an offer or not, I am usually driving. So how safe is it yeah. to force me to decide in seconds? They, uh, the, a map pops up that tells you two things. Estimated time and estimated uh, travel. Now, they get this from Google Maps. It does not count traffic because Google Maps is bad at that. Yeah. And it doesn't count anything else. And it doesn't also doesn't tell us how far I am from where the restaurant is because that's when they measure it. They don't pay you to drive to the restaurant to pick up food. You don't get paid till you, you start. That's how they count and we know from DoorDash got sued and everyone found out that what they had been doing is their business model was to take the entire tip and keep it and then pay. So if Rish- you tip me $10, they didn't pay any of it. They just gave me six fifty and then kept the other three fifty and paid me $0. Rochelle and I were talking about this in the first episode because I couldn't find the, the source I wanted. Right. Okay. So the business model of DoorDash is this. In order to be a DoorDash partner as a restaurant, they minimum charge you 15% off the top. I don't know if you know a lot about the restaurant industry, but that is usually the size or smaller of their actual profit margin. A lot of restaurants in Seattle have been relying on delivery drivers in order to stay open. What we are doing is DoorDash charges the restaurant just for access to their drivers. They make the drivers pay for all the costs of things like cars, gas, all of the free time, everything that we do, hanging out. They don't pay for any of that. That's on us. So that we make less and less as mm-hmm. you add up these costs. And then they charge the customer. They overcharge you, frequently raise the price on the app for what it would cost you to order directly from the restaurant. 
But since the restaurant driver, most restaurants have fired all their delivery drivers to use DoorDash because even without having employees, most of them still save money. So now all those former delivery drivers have to drive for DoorDash, make less money, and not get compensated like they used to when they were an actual employee. So DoorDash takes money from the consumer, the company, and the worker. Their profit margins are insane. That's not going into anybody's pocket but their own. So, like... Yeah, it's, it is very much so. So, ultimately... It's assholes all the way down. Seattle has uh, one out of eight people in Seattle in poverty, which is measured as under $13,000 a year. So one out of eight people where the rent is $2,200 a uh, month make less than 13 a year and that's working adults that doesn't count disabled people who work yeah yada yada so the fight that we're having with these companies we're not even fighting for a living wage it we're literally fighting for what we've decided is a minimum wage but still isn't enough which is yeah. why we're steps behind even if we got everything we asked for we wouldn't get enough paid for making a minimum wage after cost and gas we are using the irs uh, uh mileage standard Companies argue against that, but that's just because companies don't want to pay what the IRS says you should get paid. We want flexibility so that people actually get the benefit of gig work, unlike what they do now, where they say you have flexibility, but only after you jump through certain hoops, like being a top dasher. Not everyone can make 100 deliveries a week that's, that's, or a month. That's just not – everybody can't do it full-time. So part-timers don't have access to that. Not useful then. And then we want um, transparency so that people can have the right to choose. One of the basic tenets of capitalism, literally, I believe, from the wealth of nations itself, like one of their Bibles, says that one of the foundations of free market capitalism is that everyone agreeing knows what they're agreeing to. Now, modern capitalism has moved away. We uh, do uh, caveat emptor, buyer beware. And that's not the basic tenet for successful capitalism. DoorDash hides everything from everybody. So, like, uh, I know how far that's going to be because I looked at the map. Well, West Seattle, the West Seattle Bridge has been out since 2020 and isn't going to be done until later this year. Without that West Seattle Bridge going over the water, uh, it's an extra 30 minutes to get to West Seattle, which I pay for, of course, in travel time. So in order to get me to go to West Seattle, they would flip the map around and do little tricks like the scaling on the map to make it look like it wasn't that long of a drive because they know you only have a few seconds to decide. I have accidentally been stuck taking deliveries to West Seattle and losing money because they lied about how long it was going to be. We need drive, we need workers to be able to make at least minimum wage, and then we need to give workers the freedom and flexibility to do the gig work itself. They already You already lose out a lot of things by being a gig worker. This is the basic minimum and the three things that we're trying to get through. So if, what you can do from home is not a lot if you're outside Seattle. Now, the idea, of course, as is the idea in all labor movements, is to get these things to succeed somewhere and then hopefully find some replication. So if it works well in Seattle, to try to spread that to the state at a certain point. As we add protections, like the ability to use the bathroom while you're working. You know, such a big ask. Such a big like, ask. Wow. Ask Plaid, ask Plaid Pantry employees. So this fight for the worker is very difficult, and it's all uphill because the corporation has argue, argue, arguments against all of this. So that 170% thing that Councilmember Nelson brought up was they basically just ignored that that other money was to cover the cost of doing your job. And they just go straight to the number of like, oh, they'll get paid 170% and then just not mention that, yeah, because they have to buy gas 
It costs me a hundred dollars a month just to park my car. Yeah, you have to pay to park your car. You have to pay yeah. to insure your car. Then you have to cover all the costs, like the mileage is specifically to cover any repairs you need to do on your car. If you get into an accident in the car, you don't have insurance through DoorDash. As a matter of fact, if uh, your insurance company knows you drive for DoorDash, they want you to get a commercial insurance. Well, if you know someone that's in Seattle, that's a gig worker especially, most of us don't know that this exists or have been fed misinformation. One of the arguments against things like Working Washington is the whole argument against organized labor in any form is that it's ultimately harmful. But the thing of it is, is they, they haven't asked for anything from me but what I wanted to do anyway. Like, they're not making money off this. They spent $500 just on paper to make the paper bags for the event at City Hall. Like, they're paying staff, but they only get to do bare minimum of work. Like, they help with management. That's about it. So, like, if... If more people do gig work, knows this exists, it can be supportive, then that helps. If you know someone that's in Seattle, the best thing you can do is contact city council. Like every other small city political group, they take the numbers that they're given and they magnify that. Obviously, we have support on the city council. These things should go through. Nelson isn't a new enough addition and has no soft power, can't do anything about it. But if you do know a city council member or know someone in Seattle, if you can contact your city council member and be like, hey... I need these gig workers to get this that will help you know, harden their resolve so that when these things do come to a vote, they pass. Because there is still some negotiation on the exact numbers. They are still going to try to lower the compensation rate for gas. And we at least want people to be able to afford to do the job. You know, the argument, they want to move the argument all the way over to people being entitled spoiled brats who shouldn't, should, that should have to pay for the right to work. But they don't want to use that language. When I go on traditional media, they edit out all this political stuff and then boil yeah. it all down to me talking about discriminatory stuff. One of the things we're also trying to pass that's not a central focus but it's still super important is right now there's no way to report any sort of discrimination. So if there's a restaurant that is known to be racist, and they are here, you know, you know about those in Portland too, you can't mm. identify that as a driver. You can't unmatch from customers or restaurants. We want that added. So that if there is somebody who is vehemently anti-black, you don't have to send black workers there. Especially, you know, they, so they're going to match. If you deliver to a customer who calls you a slur, you shouldn't have to have to deliver yeah. to that person ever again. So what we're asking for is basic labor protections. We're just trying to close loopholes. You know, if you do know someone from Seattle, try to contact. Applying pressure on the city council is basically the best thing we can do at this point. Playing city politics is not something I have the patience for full time because I'm a little too hot for that. So, like, we just really need the city council to believe that this is important because it impacts them. Plus, at the very end of the day, going all the way back to that single mom I talked about, this single mom has three kids, works, DoorDash, doesn't make enough money, has to use food stamps. The conservatives should be on board with the idea that we're taking money and putting it back into Seattle so that this woman who now gets paid enough, a minimum of $5 per delivery, can now take that money and buy food instead of using food stamps because she can afford it now. Pay her rent, which makes landlords happy. You know, everyone complains about, what about the landlords in those circles? But the reality is, if you just pay the worker, the landlord will get the money. I, speaking of people living, is this... Yeah, and speaking of Nazis and speaking of dealing with conservatives, we had something really fucked up happen in Portland the other night. Oh, that is a great segue. Yeah, I, I know how to segue. I got a segue in this house. Just kidding. Uh, Maelstrom, I'm gonna I, I'm paying attention to the clock. So where can oh, our where can our our audience? <laughs> 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 Sorry, 
smooth segue. Uh, where can our listeners find you if they want to find you maybe for the comedic things and maybe to support? Fair, well, fair if and when it happens. Yeah. Right, so <laughs> I'm not rebooting any of my production or comedy stuff that I will be doing in the area <gasps> after I decide that it's safe in the pandemic and I have much higher standards than uh, the public sector or the government. You have a much better standard than the straight white dudes that were, like, fighting every regulation possible to do their back-of-a-truck open mics. Right. We didn't really talk about it, but I actually use a couple different names. For instance, Mikey is short for Maelstrom with me. So it's not abnormal to see Mikey used, because if I introduce myself to someone, but I don't want to bring in all the gender conversation, I will just introduce myself as Mikey. So if you want to find me, Twitter's probably the most regular thing I can go all day without checking my Facebook. I only scroll for a couple minutes, and I think it might be on lockdown. Instagram has is under Mikey Pullman, but the same. Um, I believe Twitter, and that will be under Mail Force One, as in M A E L. Name was written. Uh, name was given to me by a friend of mine. That's beautiful. I, I don't post on TikTok because I'm just a lurker, and I don't. The RSD has been getting in the way of making videos. Plus, the fact that you can actually hear the i5 <laughs> most of the time. I mean, you can't because of uh, the microphone's not picking up very well. But when I recorded stuff, it was an issue. So, uh, yeah, I'll be rebooting live shows in Seattle and working on rebuilding a community. Hell yeah. Later. Um, outside of that, yeah, you're probably not going to see me a whole lot or doing a whole lot. And we one yeah. t- sometimes we look up and we're looking at the same moon. <laughs> no, well, and we definitely... And we definitely want to have you have Absolutely. You back as a guest. Like, and if you're in town, hit us up. We'll try to figure out an episode. Yeah, thanks for com- thanks for being yeah. with us today, Maelstrom. We really appreciate it. Thanks. I had fun. All right. We'll talk to y'all later. Bye, yeah, everyone. Thank you. The News Dump was produced by Rochelle Cody and Patrick Thomas Perkins. It was edited by Patrick Thomas Perkins. Music clips can be found in full on Aesop Rock's The Blob, available at Rhymesayers Entertainment. For free. Like, like he says to do stuff like this. That's why I did it. Thank you for picking up Recyclables today. Donations to the Acast streaming service are, of course, always welcomed, but the best way to support the show is by going to patreon.com forward slash recyclables and becoming a patron today. If you can't do that, another great way is by liking, subscribing, sharing, rating, and reviewing the podcast on whatever podcast listening service you use. All right, thanks.